welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, at PEM Tweets on Twitter and author of PEM Blog, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Educational Website. Now, today we're going to talk about respiratory distress, which is an incredibly common chief complaint in the emergency department. In fact, some reports indicate that it may account for up to 10% of all pediatric ED visits. Respiratory arrest is the most common cause of cardiac arrest in children, so obviously this is a big deal topic. Overall, in infants and young children, the key symptoms are tachypnea and retractions. But note that there's a lot more to the assessment, evaluation, and management of kids in respiratory distress, obviously. Obviously, the child's medical history plays a big role, but most of the kids you'll see come in with acute illnesses like bronchiolitis. Certainly, if a child has sickle cell disease, you have to think about something like acute chest. Or a patient with severe asthma that abruptly worsens, well, they could have a pneumothorax. Obviously, fragile medical children with neuromuscular disorders like CP, those that are bed-bound, will have poor compensatory mechanisms and can get themselves into trouble with respiratory distress a lot sooner than other patients. Also, be cognizant of the effects of ingestions, particularly opiates, which will cause the obligatory respiratory depression. Now, in general, when you're looking at and evaluating a kid with respiratory distress, you've got to start with their mental status. The brain needs oxygen. Signs of early air hunger, you'll see restless and agitated kids, late somnolence and true lethargy. That's you're almost in a coma. It takes a lot of work to wake you up, and then you go right back to that almost in a coma state. In general, if a patient with respiratory distress is maintaining their airway and has good mental status, leave well enough alone. You can make things worse by making them upset. Anxiety and crying increases the work of breathing in young children. Especially in cases of upper airway disease, this can occur because the diameter of the trachea and proximal airway decreases. Now, as an adult, you've got firm cartilaginous rings in your trachea. Little kids, well, they're not so firm. So forceful inspiration, crying, agitation causes that cylindrical shape to flatten out as the child sucks in air hard. The resistance to airflow can increase fourfold when the kid is anxious and crying. Making the kid mad will also increase the metabolic demand for oxygen. And at baseline, the oxygen consumption of an infant is 6 mLs per kilo per minute. That's twice that the rate of adults, which is 3 mLs per kilo per minute. If you see visible cyanosis or duskiness, more often than not, that means that A, there's some poor cardiac output or shock, and they've got low arterial oxygen. So put the kid on oxygen and give them respiratory support. If a kid can't handle secretions, well, think upper airway obstruction, you know, oral pharyngeal location down to the cords. And vitals are vital, right? So the normal respiratory rate often varies by age. And you should consult local tables, PALS algorithms and guidelines, and whatever else you have on hand. Tachypnea is caused by lots of stuff. Fever, exercise, crying, heart disease, metabolic acidosis. In the case of fever, for each degree centigrade above normal, the respiratory rate can increase 3 to 7 breaths per minute. In infants, this can be as high as 7 to 11 breaths per minute, so keep that in mind. Kids that are apneic and bradycardic, you know, in which the latter follows the former, uh, this usually occurs with muscle fatigue, and it's a really bad thing, obviously. It can be seen early on in bronchiolitis, especially in babies with congenital heart disease and those that are gestational age less than 42 to 44 weeks or under three months. 
Certainly preemies, non-accidental trauma patients can also have apnea and bradycardia for various reasons. Respiratory distress, it's important to remember, leads to increased sympathetic tone and thus tachycardic. So most patients with respiratory distress will have tachycardia. If they don't, you got to worry about some other process or poor compensation. And again, bradycardia in the hypoxemic child is ominous and suggests an impending respiratory arrest, which is really bad. What about oxygen sats? Well, less than 90%, obviously that indicates significant tissue hypoxemia. Note that pulse oximetry is generally accurate to levels above 70%, so lower than that, well, hmm, accuracy, I'm not so sure. Methemoglobinemia, carboxyhemoglobinemia, obviously you're going to have an erroneous reading, so you'll need co-oximetry in those cases, just like you would in the case of suspected carbon monoxide poisoning. Poor pro-placement, uh, fingernail polish, severe anemia, you know, hemoglobin less than 5, hypothermia, all of these things can compromise your reading. And note that SATs are not a moment-to-moment measurement of oxygenation, right? This is averaged over at least 5 to 20 seconds. So often the SATs will drop after something's happened to the patient. And again, SATs tell you nothing about the ventilation of the patient's respiratory system. For that, you have to examine them and use other sources of monitoring. When you're taking care of a kid with respiratory distress, the initial goal is the rapid cardiopulmonary assessment, the ABCs. So you got to listen to the kid, see if they've got wheezes, rails, ronchi, asymmetry, if they've got one side that doesn't have breath sounds. All of these are incredibly important. Chest wall expansion, you know, look at the kid, feel the kid's chest wall, see if the chest movement is asymmetrical, paradoxical, like you'd have a kid with a pneumothorax or hemothorax or even a flail chest in the case of trauma. Look at their respiratory rate. And isn't just fast, slow, or normal, but also try to get a quantitative assessment of their number of breaths per minute. And then if really the work of breathing is key. You know, signs of increased work of breathing varied based on age, but retractions, head bobbing, nasal flaring, grunting, all of these are things that patients do in order to ventilate themselves better. In trying to figure out where the location of the pathology is, you can use certain symptoms to try to hone yourself in. So for instance, kids with upper airway obstruction will often assume that sniffing position. You know, that's where they're pushing their head forward to extend and open up the airway. They'll have nasal flaring, prolonged inspiration or strider, supraclavicular and suprasternal retractions. They'll be hoarse or have that ha ha voice, you know, that voice where it seems like you can't understand what they're saying and their mouth is on fire. They also have a barky cough like in croup. In kids with an upper airway foreign body, you're going to see choking, gagging, changes in voice, you know, strider. Um, obviously, in these cases, you got to keep the kid calm. If they're hypoxic, apneic, they have altered mental status, essentially no air is moving through the vocal cords, well, the management is immediate control of the airway. If they're stable and they're maintaining a position of comfort, well, then that kid probably just needs to go to the operating room for endoscopy with ear, nose, and throat. Epiglottitis is incredibly rare, fortunately, because we vaccinate against Hib. The rare child that you will see with epiglottitis will be toxic anxious appearing. They'll be febrile. They'll be drooling. Their voice will be muffled. They're sitting in that sniffing position. Yeah, that's classic haemophilus influenza B epiglottitis. These kids are very sick. The management consists of immediate intubation. You got to get the best intubator and consider awake intubation where you give them a drug like ketamine and topical lidocaine, you know, essentially not paralyzing them.
Croup, incredibly common cause of upper airway obstruction. Strider at rest indicates respiratory compromise. So that's the patient you want to give the racemic to. You can certainly check out PEMBLOG for lots of other materials on croup. Tracheitis is another rare but potentially worrisome cause of upper airway obstruction. Bacterial is caused by staph. Perhaps it's viral, which is likely more common. These kids can have abrupt and intermittent oxygen desaturations. You have gunk in the trachea, and as that gunk flops around, it can cause abrupt and ball valve-like obstructions. The very toxic need to be intubated, preferably in an OR setting. Neck radiographs are going to show this shaggy tracheal border you know, due to tracheal edema. And ultimately, the diagnosis is suspected both clinically and radiographically, and you're going to need to uh, consult otolaryngology for further management. Kids with a retropharyngeal abscess usually don't have respiratory distress. Now, unless they have a really, really large abscess and you lay them flat, like if you're trying to get a CT and you sedate them. So don't do that. Now, let's move down the respiratory tract to the lower airway. Now, this is where you'll probably see a lot of your patients in the winter months with bronchiolitis, asthma, and other respiratory illnesses. These kids can have nasal flaring, prolonged expiration, intercostal and subcostal retractions, grunting, you know, which is a patient auto-peeping or providing positive force at the end of expiration, wheezes, rails or crackles, uh, pleural rub, tripoding, and even pulses paradoxus, which is that uh, drop in pressure with inspiration. If you got a kid with wheezes or crackles with fever, well, obviously you're going to think infection. And bronchiolitis, community-acquired pneumonia, atypical pneumonia, pertussis, even asthma with a cold or a pneumonia. The lower airway tract foreign body is going to be unilateral in almost all cases. Bilateral, well, that's rare and kind of bad. So if in the affected side it's causing obstruction and hyperinflation, you're actually going to hear decreased breath sounds. The resistance to expiration is higher than inspiration, leading to air trapping, you know, that ball valve-like mechanism. Obviously, it's suggested based on a chronic history, you know, a history of a possible aspiration event, and certainly these kids can often worsen with stress, you know, like suctioning or crying, and feeding in a baby. An example of an illness that straddles the line between upper and lower respiratory tract disease is obviously anaphylaxis. And then you're going to run into your kids that don't seem to fit the bill for upper or lower tract, and you're worried, well, maybe something else is going on, and that something else during bronchiolitis season is often myocarditis. And these cardiac causes of respiratory distress are really difficult to tease out because they can have features that go along with other types of causes. You may hear a murmur or a gallop or rails. You can see jugular venous distension. You can feel hepatomegaly or peripheral edema. But honestly, these signs are difficult to pick up in the acute setting. The one most common one that I caution you to be aware of, especially during bronchiolitis season, is myocarditis, as I mentioned before. These kids generally have fever, and they're in respiratory distress, and it's due to compromised cardiac function rather than lung disease. It really will get worse with IV fluids, and that often is a big clue. You can hear a new murmur or gallop, but again, this is very hard to hear when a child's tachypnic. You can see an enlarged heart silhouette on chest x-ray. Certainly, these are kids that are going to need a further workup. Uh, EKG, 
a bedside ultrasound and formal echocardiogram, needless to say, cardiac consultation. Uh, the most common cause is Coxsackie B, but you're not going to get an immediate test. And the troponin can be elevated. Uh, there's not a specific number that you want to look for, but if you think a kid has myocarditis, get one, and it can be trended over time. Now, remember I said earlier that the brain likes oxygen? Well, if something's going on in the central nervous system or with a metabolic acidosis, you can see abnormal breathing patterns as well. That's beyond the scope of this podcast, but this includes things like chain stokes breathing, ataxic breathing, and the ever-popular Kussmaul breathing, which occurs with DKA. Finally, before I go, I wanted to highlight four things that you can't miss when dealing with a child with respiratory distress. You have to look for signs of air hunger or hypoxia. That includes making sure that you get early vital signs and pulse oximetry monitoring and recognize that early air hunger may cause agitation. So a kid can be fussy because they're in respiratory distress, not just because you're trying to examine them or they're in the ER. Remember that the initial response to respiratory compromise is usually tachypnea. But children that ingest opiates or have major head trauma like a non-accidental trauma, the script can be flipped. Know that irregular, slow, or apneic breathing, that is an ominous sign. That child needs immediate intervention. If you're in an urgent care setting, that means calling for an ambulance to take them to more definitive care. If you're in the ED, take them to the trauma bay. Take them to the PICU. Understand that pallor and cyanosis can be seen with hypoxemia, shock, or both. A kid who is hypoxic and pale and gray and blue is a very ill kid and needs immediate resuscitation. Well, hopefully you found this helpful. Obviously, you're going to see children with respiratory distress. The initial evaluation really takes a keen eye. You don't want to miss obvious signs, and you need to take a good, concise, and quick history. If you want to continue the conversation, you can absolutely do so with me on Twitter at PemTweets or on my site, PemBlog.com. Well, that's all for this edition of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Brad Sobolewski. See you next time.